You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. I'm Jai, I'm one of the Education Fellows, and today I've got Dr. Anne Smith, who's a consultant paediatrician and the director of the VFPMS, or the Victorian Forensic Paediatric Medical Service, back again to talk about when and how to report to Child Protection Services and what happens next. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> so I understand that there's a mandatory reporter. All health professionals, when they suspect child abuse, need to report. But there's times when I'm not exactly sure that it might be child abuse. I have a child who comes in with bruising and I have suspicions. Can we talk a bit about when you need to report to child protection? Sure. Well, I'll take you back to the word you said about suspicions. Because actually, in Victorian legislation, it's a belief on reasonable grounds that a child has suffered or is likely to suffer significant harm as a result of, and then there's a list of conditions that are listed in Section 162 of the Children, Youth and Families Act 2005, where it specifies the sorts of abuse that should raise concerns or actually it says when is a child in need of protection. And the two categories that we, doctors, are mandated to report are physical abuse and sexual abuse. And curiously, we're not actually mandated to report other forms of abuse. But of course we should. It's common sense and it's the right thing to do. And as employees, most hospitals that deal with children in Victoria actually have as part of their policy requirement that their employees... Uh, report concerns about child abuse and neglect. So you mentioned about bruising and concern in relation to bruising. When should you notify child protection Mm. about your concerns that the child might be in need of protection? Mm. And bruising is one of those really interesting things. A, very, very common. The most common injury on children that is caused by non-accidental trauma. So bruising is a very important one to know a lot about. But there's no recipe for saying if a child of X age with a bruise on X location um, in those certain circumstances means that you should have concerns about child abuse and neglect. So, for example, one bruise on an infant should raise concern about non-accidental trauma. But one bruise on the forehead of a 14-month-old who's learning to walk and still falling over a lot, or an active four-year-old who's going up and down slides and scrambling around playground equipment when the playgrounds are open, isn't going to raise concern necessarily. So it really does depend on the whole epidemiology of the injury. So as paediatricians and people who are working with children, we need to know about accidental trauma and the sorts of common injuries that occur to children of specific ages as a result of accidental trauma. And we need to know about the mimics, the things that might look like non-accidental trauma, but actually are caused by medical conditions. So things that can be confused with child abuse and neglect. And so that means that if a child has a bruise, you have to then burrow into the story a lot more. How old is the child? What's their medical history? Are there conditions that could be predisposing to bruising? What's the child's family situation? What's the purported mechanism that's caused the bruise? And is that mechanism comfortably in sync 
with the location and the pattern of bruising that you're seeing on the child. So it's a much harder question uh, to answer. What should I do when I see a child with bruise? Mm. It depends, <laughs> is the answer. So maybe if my consultant and I am down in the emergency department or I've seen a patient with my consultant in the clinic, we've still got that spidey sense tingling. We've had a think about whether it's likely to be child abuse or if it could be a mimica, and we're still not sure. <laughs> is there anywhere, or what would you suggest we do as a next step? Is there anywhere or anyone maybe we could get a call to? I think when there's a medical issue and you're really concerned about uh, determining the cause of an injury, then I think that's a valid reason for calling the forensic service for advice. There is a body of knowledge. I mean, a lot of paediatricians feel all they need is a good heart and a bit of a guess and play safe and report to child protection if they've even got the nearest suspicion. But in fact, that's not the best way to go because reporting to child protection on a very low threshold when something might be ITP or leukaemia or an accidental injury is really doing the family a great disservice. It's really horrible for people to be put through the system when there really is a sensible medical explanation for that child's condition or symptoms or signs. So I'd suggest if it's a medical concern, you're probably better to seek advice from someone like the PMS from a forensic service before going off to make a report to child protection. Now, having said that, if there are psychosocial concerns and you talk to the social worker and you're really concerned that there's something, like you said, feeling all spidery and just not quite right, um, the reasons for reporting to child protection based on psychosocial concerns or the whole picture of which the physical injury might be just a part, very, very sensible, very reasonable, and I, and I wouldn't suggest hesitating in that instance. So this child, let's say this child that we've seen in clinic, um, we've gone to the FPMS website and we've used the tools and templates to ask the right questions. We'll say a little listen to the Education Hub podcast that you guys currently did um, that talked about taking a forensic history. We've spoken with VFPMS and based on the information we have now, we all agree that this could be child abuse and we decide that we are going to report to child protection. How do we go about that? What do we do? Well, you've formed the belief on reasonable grounds, so you've met the criteria for reporting to child protection. The best way to find out which area to ring is to just look it up on the website. So you can either look up DHHS child protection websites and see where the region, um, find the region where the child lives or lives most of the time. It'd be hard for the kids who live 50-50 with both parents, you've just got a common sense, but it's the region where the child resides that you notify. And they will want to know the child's name and their address, the names of their parents, and probably the names and dates of births of their siblings. And the process does take longer than we as doctors would like. And people sometimes complain that it takes them a while to get onto child protection to answer the phone. And some regions are a little bit more problematic than others. We're pretty lucky here in the Northwest region that they seem to pick up the phone fairly promptly. I think in the southeast region, there can be longer delays, later data. But um, you will have to go through with the child protection person on the end of the telephone precisely why you're concerned. 
And my tip is to use plain English and to stay away from medical jargon. Child protection workers, like all of us, tend to tune out a bit if they start hearing too many medical words. And as doctors, we tend to use words like presenting with or presented to or something like that. And sometimes child protection workers kind of go, they're so busy thinking about what do they mean by present, they're not hearing the rest of the sentence. So keeping it to plain English, really making it very clear and very simple why you're concerned. Telling them about your observations, you know, what you saw, what you heard, what was going through your mind, precisely why you're concerned about this child's safety and wellbeing, and explaining to them what you think the risks to the child are. They may not share your view, but you need to explain to them why you feel that this child might not be safe. And then what your plans are. If it's admission to hospital, what tests are planned and what needs to happen from your point of view medically from then on. Okay. So considering it takes a little bit of time, um, let's say that we've looked up and we've realised that they're in the northwest catchment, we're about to get on the phone. I've just spoken with the mother who's brought their child in. Do I do it during the consult? Do I wait until after the consult? When am I calling? It will vary a little bit depending on the reasons for the call. There are some consultations where you're really working in partnership with a parent to try and advocate for them to get better services or to improve the safety for their child. The child might be with one parent who's actually alleging that the other parent has injured the child. And in that situation, you may choose to have the parent with you while you make the call as a trust-building exercise, so they know precisely what you have said to the child protection practitioners. In other situations, you might be wiser to um, do it not with the family with you in the consultation. For reasons of confidentiality, you may feel that you have concerns or suspicions that you don't wish to voice in front of a parent with quite sensitive information. And you might even choose to have a helpful colleague, such as, um, please don't take offence, social workers and nurses, but if someone can make the phone call, stay on the phone, and when you actually make the connection to child protection, quick, giant, come, I've got them on the phone now, that might enable you to go off and do some more of your busy work and uh, not spend 15 minutes or so plus on the telephone waiting for your turn to come up. You okay. are fifth in line, you are fourth in line, you are third in line, etc. So that's maximising your time and skills um, whilst you're waiting to give them that information. There are some situations where people uh, would choose to make a report to child protection without notifying the family. For example, if someone's in a general practice and they feel threatened and really concerned that someone's going to go off tap and harm them mm -hmm. or their property, then they may choose to ring child protection when that person's not in the building. In most instances, I personally find it a better approach to inform people that that's what I'm going to do. Um, talking with them really about that's my obligation, I am a mandated reporter and I have to, or that it's the right thing to do, or that the hospital requires me to do this, etc. Okay. And then after I've made the call. Um, so if they're in this general paediatric clinic with me, 
a child protection going to show up to the clinic? Are they going to be waiting for the parents and the child as soon as they get home? What normally happens after we make those sorts of calls? It's another one of those it depends kind of questions. Uh, if the child has a serious injury like fractures or you're worried about an infant with abusive head trauma, the child might require admission to hospital in order to sort it out. In which case your phone call to child protection will be, I'm admitting this baby to hospital because, and they will then presumably make some additional phone calls to get some more information. They may choose to attend relatively promptly within a few hours in order to meet with the parents and have further conversations with hospital staff, including social workers. Or in another scenario, if a child has, for example, um, trying to think of something that would not require admission to hospital, it might be something like somewhat neglected in Patigo. So the child doesn't need admission to hospital, you've given them the medical treatment that they require but you feel that there's an element of neglect that has led to the child's presentation. So child protection in that instance might feel that they don't need to do anything urgently, but they might schedule a home visit within the next day or two, or they might choose, particularly in the COVID times when we're not visiting people at home so often, they may choose to contact people by telephone and to have some additional um, information gathering activities uh, that are not face-to-face. -face. So to follow both of those trajectories, so maybe if I had the general paediatric clinic patient who had something like the impetigo that might have been better managed, I've made that report and child protection in speaking with me said that they might go and see or get some more information and then decide whether they need to see the family. Am I likely to get called again? Am I likely to um, have to do anything more after that initial phone call? Likely, no. You might, like it's not impossible that they would bring you back. Ideally, they would bring you back and say, thank you very much for your report to child protection. We are just giving you feedback and closing the loop and letting you know the outcome of your report. Now that would be really nice if that happened more often. It's meant to happen, but it doesn't happen a lot. In the other scenario, the child admitted to hospital, there is highly likely to be a meeting of minds between the health professionals, social worker in the hospital, the child protection practitioners, and Victoria Police. And the three, I liken it to a three-legged stool. So you've got health investigation, police investigation, child protection, protective investigation, holding up the three-legged stool. And child protection's job is to see whether the child needs to have statutory intervention to make them safer or more often a welfare-based intervention how can we better support these parents so that they can do a better job mm -hmm. of looking after their child and keeping the child safe police of course are involved in criminal investigations so they want to sort out has a crime been committed what's the evidence that a crime's been committed so that that'll be their take on it yeah. and the health professionals are doing their own sort of detective work What's the cause and timing of injury? That's the forensic bit. And the psychosocial bit is what are this child's circumstances? What's their psychosocial circumstances that A, could be improved so that they've got a better quality of life and a safer life? And B, what are the risk factors that predispose them to harm from some sort of child abuse?
What can we do to make it better? That's what we're really on about. So going on with that anecdote, so we've had this suspected child abuse and neglect meeting, this meeting of three minds, the SCAN meeting. They've had their fracture fixed in hospital and child protection had decided that they can go home, but they're going to go home with some other family members that can keep an eye on them and make sure that they recover okay. Some, I'd never had experience with it before, <laughs> my um, role of VFPMS is one of the fellows um, sometimes we write a forensic report. Could we have a little talk about what a forensic report um, is actually about um, to maybe how you go about writing a report and then three, what it's used for and when we decide it might be useful to write a forensic report, not just our medical notes. Sure. Well, a forensic report is a little bit different to other things that most doctors who are just starting to do their work with children have done before. So everybody's written letters, everybody's written documentation, the hospital record. That's all, yeah, yeah, ho-hum. But writing a forensic report actually is at a different level because it is potentially to be used within the legal system. So it needs to be fairly formal. It needs to have a set structure. And there are some tips that... People could use if they wished in terms of the easiest possible way of writing a forensic medical report. Unfortunately, on the VFPMS website, we've got some templates that people might find useful. There's a very brief one that we use for interim reports, which basically says, I've seen the child, this is what they had on examination, this is the early results of investigations. In a nutshell, this is what I think is going on. Or the more uh, comprehensive reports that address the child's injuries, so symptoms, signs, also their circumstances, the story for what um, the narrative to account for the injury, as well as family history, their past medical history, all examination findings, all the investigations, and then a quite erudite discussion around causes and timing and consequences of injury. So that's in a nutshell what you want in a forensic medical report. I'd really dissuade junior doctors from uh, saying okay if they are pressured by more senior doctors to write forensic medical reports. I've certainly seen that happen in regional hospitals in Victoria. People are busy. I understand all the reasons why it happens, but I think it's unfair to junior doctors to have senior doctors putting them in the position of writing a forensic medical report. Okay if they would like to draft it and the consultant paediatrician can then um, review it, edit it. I was going to say correct it, but that's not really what I wanted to say. <laughs> Offer their useful, clever suggestions so that between the two individuals there is a um, a report produced that has had input from two people. So that's a training exercise for the junior doctor, but the senior doctor actually takes responsibility for the opinion. And in that circumstance, I think it's reasonable for the senior doctor to say, this report has been written under my supervision and they either co-sign it or I take responsibility for the opinion, which means that should the matter get to court, it's the senior doctor who's actually the one who's going to be subpoenaed to court and the poor junior resident or um, young registrar is not put in a position of having to defend an opinion that wasn't actually theirs to start with, mm. and they haven't got the knowledge base 
to underpin defending that position under cross-examination. That's the other um, thing that juniors often get very worried about, that somehow being entangled with these cases means that they will almost certainly be called to make a court appearance. Uh, I know there's not a real number we can put on whether or not you're likely to go into court. Maybe we can talk about cases, opinions, or times when you're more likely to go to court than not. And then maybe talking about getting called to court, what that looks like, basically what happens on the day. First up, let's look at the chances of being called to court. Chances are slim, actually. Chances are slim. So, fortunately, uh, if a forensic team is involved, then it's likely that the forensic team's going to be subpoenaed to court and not other people for most admissions. That's not always the case, but for most admissions. For outpatients, it's the one doctor, the one doctor might be called to court. But it's important to recognise that most reports to child protection, notifications to child protection, are not uh, processed within child protection to the point where legal intervention is necessary. So most children who are reported to child protection end up getting an improvement in the services their parents can access or the services and or the services that they can access rather than having legal intervention so that they go on a protective order and a tiny percentage are actually removed from parents' care. Now, I've made tiny a big emphasis to make sure people aren't terribly worried about that, but, I mean, certainly that happens for some children. Let's not dismiss it altogether. But the majority, the majority remain in parents' care with or without some additional services and with or without some additional safety measures such as other people in the home for surveillance, etc. Now, at the Children's Hospital, we probably see a decent percentage of the children who do go through the court system. Of the ones who do, it's much more likely to be the children's court than it is to be through the criminal justice system. And in the children's court, there's a probability that the reports that have been written will be sufficient and the doctors won't actually need to go to court to testify. But that does happen. People do need to go to court to testify. And the process for that is, first of all, receiving a subpoena. So people tend to be very nervous and anxious and worried when they get a subpoena. What does that mean? How do I manage it? What do I do? My advice is to first talk to the person who issued the subpoena so their name is on the bottom of it. So you ring them up and say, I've just been delivered, you know, someone's just, no, panic, panic, someone's just given me a subpoena and it says I've got to be in the children's court at 10am on Monday or whatever and I'm meant to be on holidays that week and I can't, you know, so there's all sorts of reasons that people really are in a bit of spin when they get a subpoena. So talking to the person who issued the subpoena first up is really good advice because they'll say, yes, I know that's the date that we listed, but, you know, that's a month off and it may not be that date and can I talk to you beforehand and you're going to be overseas and so you can't be available and, yes, I'll acknowledge that. And you're back on Friday, are you? <laughs> yes, so the next week's fine and they'll book it in from there. And if you do end up going to court, Children's Court down in Little Lonsdale Street, that's... My advice is to talk to someone who's been before a fair bit so that you've got an understanding of exactly what the process is. 
Sometimes it's possible for someone to come with you to hold your hand. That doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it's possible. It's always best to talk with someone about the sort of questions you might be asked in court. Why have I been subpoenaed for this? What's my contribution to the legal process? What are they likely to ask me? How should I answer the questions? Those sort of things. So chatting to someone like someone from VFPMS or your consultant or someone who's been to court a few times, a good idea. So I'm sticking with the same example. Say I've made the report and it's been a week and it's been two weeks. I haven't heard anything back from Child Protection Services. Does that mean the family's okay, that nothing's needed to happen? Does that mean that Child Protection Services have been busy behind the scenes and um, um, doing something else? Does that mean that Child Protection Services are asking different questions and will come back to me in the next two to three weeks? If I haven't heard anything, what does that mean? It's pretty typical. <laughs> it's a pity that the system is not perfect. You know, in an ideal world, it would be really nice to have a three-legged stool concept working really well with constant communication going between the three investigative teams in an ongoing way. But in practice, once that initial plan's been made and people go off and start doing all their own things, it tends to be a bit more siloed. So unfortunately, it's not uncommon, sad, but not uncommon for medical people who have agonised about making a report. You know, they've really felt bad about ringing up child protection. You know, maybe it's a child's birthday. Maybe it was Christmas Day or you know, some special event that they really did, Mother's Day, they really did not want to ruin. And yet the situation was such where they felt compelled on very, very reasonable grounds to make a report to child protection about their concerns that the child wasn't safe. And it becomes doubly hard then, having made that report, not to get any feedback from child protection, certainly within days, as to what child protection have decided to do in terms of the action to take to better protect that child. It is very reasonable for doctors to then ring up and say, on such and such a date, I made a report about such and such a child and I'm just ringing to inquire as to what action child protection had taken. So they'll often take your name and phone number and say, I'll get the assigned child protection practitioner to give you a ring back. So you mightn't get an immediate response, but someone then should get back and give you the information that you need in order to provide ongoing care for a child. You know, we get very involved in the lives of the children that we care for. We want to know that we've done the right thing by them and by their families. And I agree, it is a bit soul-destroying, really, not to be included in the loop in terms of protective intervention, protective action. Sometimes it'll be weeks to months down the track when you'll suddenly get a subpoena for a child that you've rung up and notified about. I feel a bit sad and disappointed that uh, those sort of things happen. I think we just have to be, you know, grown up about it all and take that as a sign that we're all still working very hard to try and make the system better. You know, it ain't perfect yet, but we're all working to try and make it better. So when opportunities arise for us to ring and double-check what child protection are doing, we should grab them. 
Well, thank you. We've gone through so much today. It's really useful. So just in summary, we've talked about um, occasions when we might think it could be child abuse and using a consultant and some of those tools, templates from via PMS or speaking to someone about forensics about helping us work out our level of suspicion, knowing that if we have any suspicion, we should... Oh, we're there if you need help. We're there if you need We should report and report by looking up on the VHHS website, working out who is best from child protection to call and making the report. The report might take some time, 15-ish minutes, um, because they want a lot of detail about the social situation, about the child, about our suspicions. If we don't hear anything from the call and we um, uh, would like to know more about what's happened, we can call back child protection. If they come into hospital, often we have a scan or a suspected child abuse and we go, um, meeting together with police, together with child protection and medical staff so we can all share our information and try and find the best outcome for the child. Occasionally that needs to be supported with a forensic report which is more detailed and gives the courts um, some extra information in making a decision. And very, very rarely <laughs> that might also lead to attending to court and if we were um, to receive a subpoena to go to court, we should have a little talk to someone who's been to court before to get an idea about the process. Spot on. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.